to today's episode of A Slice of Medieval. I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. Last episode, we had Catherine Warner on talking about Edward II and Isabella of France and brought up the issue of Isabella being called a she-wolf. Now, this got me thinking. There are two main women in English history who are called she-wolves, Isabella of France and Margaret of Anjou. Now, neither of them, to be honest, do I think should be called she-wolves. It's basically an insult, suggesting that they're overbearing and getting above themselves. So, seeing as we discussed Isabella with Catherine, I thought it would be a good idea to look into Margaret of Anjou and her career as the wife of and queen of Henry VI and see if she does deserve this intense criticism. Well, first, who was Margaret of Anjou? She was Henry VI's wife. She was a French princess, but she wasn't the daughter of a French king, was she? She was, yeah, she was the daughter of René of Anjou. I think she was one of his youngest children. And obviously she was of a a level of nobility that had connections. Uh, Her mother was, I think, Duchess of Lorraine. So she was in the sort of middling to high nobility of France. And therefore... Because she was of marriageable age and because the French king at the time was eager to have a potential bride to offer to Henry VI, she she was kind of, I guess she wasn't the only possibility, but she was a, she was a useful commodity, shall we say, mm. which is how, of course, kings would look at uh, uh, noble women, young noble women at that time, which meant that she was married to Henry at the age of 15, I think that probably the proxy marriage in France might have taken yes. place even before that. But but when she got to England, I think she was 15. And crikey, that must have been a bit of a shock for yeah, her. Yeah, that's really. what I was thinking. You know, they, she, was, she was only 15 and moved to a foreign country to live with a man she'd never met. And also, um, not just a foreign country, but a hostile country. This was the height of the Hundred Years' War. England and France had been at war for decades. <laughs> it must have been scary for her. Yeah, particularly as I think that she was probably aware of the pressure on her. She was described, I think, as as the white dove of peace mm. because it was assumed that this marriage would be in some way the basis of a, of a lasting peace between England and France, as you say, after such a long and, and turbulent war. So there was pressure on her as well, not just to be the Queen of England at, at a very tender age, but yeah. there was another agenda there about settling the differences with France, which is no small no small task. No. And the thing is, it didn't help that she didn't bring a dowry, whereas usually a father paid for his daughter to get married. In this case, it's more like England paid to marry Margaret, wasn't it? Because Henry gave up lands in order to marry Margaret. She didn't bring any money with her. It was just Margaret and the clothes she stood up in. (laughs) 
I think for the for the average English king, if there is such a thing as an average English king, it would have been seen as perhaps a poor marriage deal. But she herself, she was she was young, she was vivacious, she was apparently good looking, and she would have been seen as a good a good bride coming from good sort of Angevin stock. So I think whilst the marriage deal wasn't favourable to England, I think there was a lot of optimism in England as well as France that this marriage was going to solve a whole lot of problems. Mm. It's very noticeable that the two things are indistinguishable, peace with France and her marriage to Henry. Those two things are are totally intertwined for the next few years. And the expectations... Yeah. And to be fair to her, she doesn't get the blame for it initially, does she? It's William de Lapole, the Duke of Suffolk, who was blamed for the unfavourable treaty terms. (laughs) There was a truce, I think, Suffolk negotiated. I mean, Suffolk obviously was was a very powerful man acting on behalf of the king, of King Henry VI, because, as no doubt we'll say many times, Henry VI was not really capable of acting for himself Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. But the one thing that we do know for absolute certain is that the peace policy, the idea of making a a lasting peace with France was very much Henry's desire. Uh, He believed in it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Everything he believed in convinced him that he should make peace with France. And the marriage was kind of an extension of that. You know, Henry is often regarded as, as, a, as a man who didn't know what to do with a woman. But when Margaret arrived, I mean, he showered her with gifts and he was very chivalrous towards her and, and very kind. He was kind towards everybody, of course, mm-hmm. partly as, as undoing. But I mean, it all started very, very positively. The The initial effect of Margaret's arrival, whatever reservations individual nobles particularly might have had about the marriage deal, I think the initial impact of her arrival was favourable. Uh, optimistic, you know, here we go, perhaps we can finally solve this great problem. But of course, they couldn't. <laughs> There were just too many factors involved, wasn't there? And I wonder if they'd had a child straight away, if Henry had managed to remain sane and strong. No, he, he missed out on that gene, I think. His dad had too much of it. I mean, he... <laughs> yeah. Well, it's strange, isn't it? He He's a conundrum in many ways. There are certain things about Henry I think one can be totally certain about. But there are other things that are difficult to fathom. He's had a bad press, yes. a very bad press from historians. And... And, you know, in general, people think of him as a mad king. I don't think at any point he was mad. No. I think that's a, that's a ludicrous term to describe him. He had an illness, which would later lay him low. But he also went through some very traumatic experiences, which would have tried the, the, the resilience of a lot of people. If we, if we focus on the, the, the Hundred Years' War and, and the attempt to try and end it, Margaret Margaret is writing letters to... Charles VII, the King of France, seeking a a peace accord between them. Henry himself has made it clear that he wants to make peace. Mm. And as you said, the Duke of Suffolk is is involved in, in those negotiations. In the in the 1440s, but it, it's they go around in circles, and then they decide, well, perhaps if the two kings met, that would be much easier, and they can just hammer out an agreement, and that'll be it, rather than negotiators operating for them so everybody thought this was a great idea but they never actually managed to nail down a meeting Mm. they never actually got that to happen charles the seventh is a wily operator henry the sixth is the opposite Mm. he is he is 
in, and innocent in, in, in terms of diplomatic manoeuvring and so on. So really, Henry had no hope against Charles VII of outwitting him or, or even striking a, a good deal. Mm. Henry offered to give the province of Maine to France as a goodwill offer, if you like. And so what happens about five minutes later is that the French negotiators are basically saying, well, yes, OK, we accept Maine. Now, they accept it as if, you know, that's a given. And then they move on to what else they want. So Henry's yeah. attempt at an offer of goodwill is is totally backfires because he just weakens their position even further. And that was the story of it, really. Mm. I think Margaret was not at all to blame for the failure of those negotiations. She was in the middle. No. She was supposed to sort it out, or her marriage was supposed to offer you know, a chance for the olive branch, but she couldn't do it on her own. She was she was a woman in a man's world, and we'll say this a lot. Yeah. Mm. She's only 15, even in even in the she's only sort of 19, 20 years of age. I mean, and she's well, she born about 15, uh, 1430, I think, something like that. So yeah, that'd be about right. Yeah, she's just a teenager. And I mean, a queen didn't have as much political power and influence until she was the mother of the heir. You know, so while she still didn't have children, she she didn't have a strong position to press things or to influence things because she could so easily be repudiated and sent back to France anyway. So she had she had to walk a, a tight line. And as you say, she was only she was still only a teenager. She was still very, very inexperienced young woman. I think the other thing, and it's a really, really important point about this whole business of peace with France and, and the war itself, is that though Henry wanted peace and Margaret wanted peace, almost nobody else in England did. I mean, it, he was yeah. totally out of line with what his his greatest subjects thought and also what the, the, the common people thought. Everybody, you know, they were brought up on his father's victories. Yes. And he had not had success, or at least his commanders had not had success in France overall. It was a, a slow war in the 1450s with, you know, successes and failures here and there. But it wasn't anything to write home about. And so when Henry presents this idea of giving up territory to make peace with France, that's not what anybody wants to hear. No, because they fought over that territory to win it in the first place. They don't want to just give it back with no more bloodshed. So... Basically, Margaret, as we've touched on this already, and no doubt we'll touch on it throughout, Margaret's position at, in the early part of the reign is she is the queen, but queens in medieval England had very little influence, as you said, before they had actually brought a male heir into the world. But also, they, even then, they, they were very much operating with the consent of their husband. And publicly, they, it was mainly intercessionary things like um, seeking to um, pardons and mercy for people who'd done things wrong. Yeah. And ironically, as in the, the, the peace with France, it was it was her role was supposed to be mediating, yeah. interceding to, to make it happen. And I guess she, she sort of starts off with a failure, therefore. People feel that... Mm. She's not delivered. No. It's not her fault. That's that's what that's what's it rather irritating is that somehow she gets the blame 
for these negotiations stalling and for the the concessions that England makes. And you can imagine that. She's still a young girl and she's there. She's married this bloke she's never met before and become queen of this country where most of them speak a different language to her. The court would have probably spoken a lot of French well, but the rest of the country wouldn't have. She's expected to play this role that she's still only a child herself and she's got to act like a woman and be a woman. And they're all already holding against her that she didn't bring manage to bring the peace that she was supposed to, even though just the act of marrying was supposed to bring the peace, not her herself. And you you just wonder whether or not she did start get, feeling a little bit resentful towards the people who brought her over and then started blaming her straight away. <laughs> the, obviously, the need for an heir was one of the most important facets of the period of the 1440s and 50s. Especially seeing as Henry VI didn't have any brothers either. So without an heir, there was going to be a contest for the crown. There was a lot of uncertainty around that. The suggestion is that Henry wasn't capable of producing an heir. And there were actually, there were literally rules laid down for the occasions mm. when she she went to Henry's bed. Uh, there, was a, there was a protocol. So it was overseen, shall we say. <laughs> How romantic. <laughs> Absolutely, full of romance. And so... I think we can be pretty certain that the deed was done on, if not a regular basis, it was done and uh, over a period of time. So she did her bit in the end by by producing an heir. But up to the point where she produced an heir in 1453, there was uncertainty, as we've said. And, and the, the mm. problem got worse in 1450 when when the Duke of Suffolk's government, his regime, which, which basically ruled yeah. for Henry, uh, was overthrown and Jack Cade's rebellion really destroyed him and, and literally caused his death. But an interesting point, during that period when London was at risk of being ransacked by rebels and, you know, genuine harm was, was quite likely being done to some people, mm. Henry fled the capital. Margaret, however, remained. And I think if, if anybody wants a... Uh, an indicator of the, who was wearing the trousers. Uh, I think that's it. Yes. She was not, she was brave. She wasn't going to be intimidated by a mob. But Henry, he was off, you know. I mean, he was the king, but he should perhaps have shown a bit more steel at that critical moment because it, it didn't look good at all. It's interesting, actually, isn't it? Because you see um, everybody comments about how she was overbearing because she would be she would get things done and she would get involved but nobody comments about how brave that must have been for her because she knew the protocols she knew the rules that of what women were allowed and not allowed to do but she still stood up for herself and her family in order to get things done even though she knew it would invite censure from those who didn't like her i don't really know where this overbearing thing comes from because the evidence doesn't suggest that um, that she had that sort of a manner necessarily. We mentioned already the Queen's role as a mediator and interceding and so on. Mm. And I think she she did have that role prior to well even after giving birth to her son. She she was not hostile to everyone. There seems to be a feeling that Margaret was sort of this whole she wolf idea 
but that she was ferocious. Yes. I'm not sure where that comes from. Because, well, I do. I am sure where that comes from, but we'll we'll get to that later. But she, in fact, was worried what would happen to her husband and, of course, to her if she didn't have an heir. Mm. And she was worried more about York, the Duke of York, than anyone else, because York was effectively the heir presumptive. He was the yeah. the man that most people thought would become king if Henry died childless. But he wasn't the only possibility there. And York was seen by Margaret as a threat quite early on. And people say, oh, well, you know, she she mistrusted him for no reason. Rubbish, you know. I mean, he did everything wrong. I mean, he, he took up arms against the king long before the Wars of the Roses started. Yeah. 1450, 1452, 1452 brought an army to London. York was a man who did not necessarily seek the throne at that point, but he was a man constantly aware of his position mm. and so was she 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 thought this man you know he, he's a potential problem mm. uh, but that doesn't mean she was his enemy at that point it, it's rather we've said this before you know when when a, a child dies young it's assumed they were always ill yes. um, <laughs> because she becomes the absolute enemy of the duke of york and his son and so on we can't assume that she was always his enemy no. she actually got on very well with his wife Cecily Neville, for quite a long time. They had a lot in common, mm. and neither had given birth to a child in, in the first years of their marriage. So they 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 had something in common and uh, uh, were of a, a sort of, I guess, a sort of not not the same rank, but of a similar rank and with similar experiences of uh, in a way. So there's there's no actual reason why York should have been a problem with the Queen, given that how the Queen treated him. Mm. But as time went on, and, and of course, as soon as she supported the Duke of Somerset as a key advisor of Henry VI, that's where York comes a bit unstuck because his rivalry with Somerset goes back a decade or more. Yeah. And he's just not willing at any point to accept that Somerset can have a preeminent position mm -hmm. instead of him. I think that's the thing, isn't it? York expected to be the king's right-hand man because of his rank. He was the most senior noble in the land after the king. Yeah. And the king's heir until he had a son. Yeah. But he was frequently sidelined or left out in the cold for Henry's favourites like Suffolk and Somerset. And he felt he should have had a bigger role. And then Henry has this mental breakdown and suddenly York gets the chance to take on the senior role and become protector of the realm. But Margaret does try and become regent, doesn't she? But she gets rejected. Yeah. She asks to take on the regency, but she gets rejected because in England, there was no history of the Queen acting as regent. There had been a couple of times, I think Eleanor of Provence had done it for Henry III while he was out of the country. Yeah, the, the significant issue there is that Queens had, well, as, as you mentioned, Eleanor of Provence had acted as regent, but also other queens had been named as regent, should there be a need for it. Mm. But they'd been named by the king. Yeah. And the problem in 1450-54, when Henry basically uh, is in a catatonic trance, is that he can't do that. Mm. And that's the nub of it. That's the issue. It's OK. If the king says the queen can be regent, that's one thing. But if the Queen says she should be regent, that's an entirely different matter. But 
if we if we go back a bit to Somerset, why doesn't Margaret adopt York as the, the man she puts her trust mm. in? Why doesn't she say he could well be the next king if I if I don't have a child? Why don't I put my support with him and ensure that there is to be uh, a change of regime, that it's all smooth and everything goes well? Why didn't she do that? But York was a very, very powerful man. He had enormous resources. And I think she she feared yeah. that by supporting Somerset, who was a man with almost no resources. He depended entirely on Henry VI for his income. He was a man, therefore, who was loyal to the core, to Henry VI, because he had no alternative. Yes, whereas the Duke of York was independent and yeah. would act in his own interest, possibly. Whereas... Somerset would have to act in Margaret's interests in order to keep his position. Exactly. I think she did it because she thought Somerset would be a bit of a break on York's influence. Mm. So there would be a balance, perhaps. But of course, York wasn't, York didn't want a balance. Mm. And uh, I mean, Somerset didn't do himself any favours through his personality. No. But even so, it didn't seem possible for the two of them to work together. There was too much history behind them and rivalry and so on. And York did keep throwing him in the Somerset in the tower. <laughs> Which can put a dent in a friendship. <laughs> I don't think there was a friendship there to start with. Again, there's all this business about did she did she have affairs with, with other men? Was Henry mm. was Henry the father of, of Edward of Westminster and so on. But you look at her as an individual and it doesn't really make any sense that she would have liaisons. No, those rumours, you always get them with a queen when they're trying to discredit her. You either get witchcraft yeah. or adultery. Yeah. That's, the, that's always the rumours with a queen. <laughs> and of course, there is one man who is the master of creating such rumours who we have dealt with before on this podcast, and that is Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. Mm. And if you look at where the where the attacks on her reputation begin, it's not when the prince is born. It's around about 1457 to 1460 when things have hotted up a great deal. The rumours and all the rest of it, the propaganda emanates from Warwick's yeah. supporters. And we know that Warwick was a propagandist, as was Richard Duke of York. They they were masters of it. They, they put about all sorts of rumours. Mm. They undermined the Queen. Yeah. And again, if we look at it from her perspective, here is here is her entire reputation being tossed aside and the prince's birth being questioned. It's so obviously political, but it's also as an individual, as a woman, it must have been rather hurtful to have these. Yes, very. I mean, especially in London, where, where at the time she was, it was it was pretty, pretty awful. But basically, if we remember that Henry VI in 1453 and to some extent 1454 was not an active player mm. in the game what was margaret to do uh was she she just to sit and wait for the nobles to sort things out exactly i mean she's a young woman now she was raised to be a wife and mother she was trained to that role from early early childhood probably she was trained to manage a household support her husband and suddenly Henry's incapacitated and in order to protect him and defend her son's right she has to take on more of a role she's the only one she can rely on to actually protect her husband and son 
I, I think it's difficult for us to grasp the enormity of this. This has never happened before. You've got the councillors of the king unable to communicate with him at all. And, and you know, it has an effect on everybody. Mm. They don't get it. They don't understand what's going on. How can this be? Yeah. How can the king not be able to rule? They don't know what to do, basically. They keep it quiet for a while. Mm. They hope it'll go away. Yeah. You know, it'll come back to his senses. But when he doesn't, after several months, really from about uh, March 1454, they've got to do something. They know they've got to do something. And they must have been wondering, you know, is this it? Is this Henry for the rest of his life? Nobody knew he was going to recover at any point. It was like you had to set it in place so that everything continued. Yeah, because what you're talking about then is you're talking about who will rule, not just for Henry at the moment, but who will rule for his young son, his young son then becomes king. So it's a, it's a regency issue. And Margaret does actually put a bill to the council to ask to be regent. Mm. This is, as you as we said earlier, this is unprecedented. It's not something that a queen can actually do. No, I don't think it had ever been asked before either. I, no. The one I'm no. thinking of, um, when King John died, Isabella of Angoulême, she was basically pushed out of the regency council and she ended up leaving England because she just had no place in her son's life. Yeah. And you can imagine Margaret thinking, I've got to have a place in, I've got to yeah. protect my son's interests. I don't know what's going to happen with Henry, but Edward has to be the priority and I have to make sure that I protect his inheritance. Yeah, I think the other thing that, that, that is never said is that the council didn't just chuck it out, mm. that request. They talked about it for months. They discussed it. They took it seriously. Now, how important is that? Because yes. in terms of what they thought of Margaret, they didn't dismiss it out of hand as, oh, we can't possibly have her. Mm. They thought about it and then they rejected it because it didn't fit in with, with the traditional notion yep. of what a queen could and couldn't do or a woman could and couldn't do politically but that it's not as if they thought oh, it's a stupid idea they realized that they had to do something mm. her being regent was one possibility but it was so as we said it was so, so unprecedented and they didn't like the idea so then <laughs> they had to think well who else and that's where york comes back into it york had been excluded from influence throughout that period until members of the great council decided that he needed to be recalled and brought into the council now it's it seems clear that margaret was okay with that mm. she felt he needed to be there as well and perhaps that was quite clever of her in the sense that politically clever in the sense that for him to be excluded at such a vital moment was probably a bad thing better for him to be in the fold better for him to be there yeah rather than excluded and causing trouble elsewhere exactly at least she knew where he was and what he was doing keeping him busy and there was there was a quid pro quo for her agreement to that which was that before york was made protector prince edward was made prince of wales mm. In other words, there was a kind of tacit agreement that, yeah, OK, you're protector, but the future of the Lancastrian dynasty has just been assured because he's now been given that, that hereditary, sort of hereditary title of Prince of Wales. So she was aware of the difficult ground over which she had to tread. This is not the action of a she-wolf tearing her hair out and ranting at people. But, I mean, it, it became difficult then. 1454 was a very difficult year. York was trying to, to rule, not very successfully. 
if you read the the, the pro-Yorkist accounts, he was fabulous. He solved all these problems and all the rest of it. In fact, the country, there was more unrest in the country in, mm. in that year than in the previous few years. And it's difficult, but You've basically got a growing factional rivalry developing in the, in the mid 1450s, yeah. culminating with the first battle, what's called the first battle of St. Albans in 1455. Now, Margaret isn't there, he's waiting to hear what happens. But Henry is, isn't he? He's absolutely Henry's not only there, he's wounded, yeah, he's in the thick of it. And this is why I think it's worth mentioning in the context of, of Margaret. Because for Henry, that first battle of St. Albans was possibly what tipped him over the edge again mm. and really perhaps prevented a full mental recovery. Yes. Because he was absolutely traumatised mm. by that. He saw his advisor, Somerset, was killed. One of, one of his most loyal and, one has to say, uh, sensible advisors, the Duke of Buckingham, uh, was was injured several times. Mm. Uh, it was it was a nonsense. The whole thing was a nonsense. But it it must have had a, an absolutely indelible impression upon Henry, but also by association on Margaret. Yeah, I actually read a theory that the that Battle of St Albans, it was literally they were targeted assassinations the whole idea was we go in we fight them and we kill somerset and buckingham not just somerset and well not buckingham so much buckingham was seen as a mediator he was seen as a a middle mm. ground person who might yet support york but you i don't think it's just a theory i think it's an absolute fact warwick in particular went to st albans to remove somerset to remove northumberland to remove clifford mm and anybody else who who might be a potential problem. So Warwick is the is the leading force there. Yeah. Warwick's the one that starts the hostilities when they're still actually negotiating. York is still negotiating with Henry yeah. when Warwick says enough of this, let's let's just get on with it. In other words, the issue was not whether they would reach an agreement, but the issue was to finally get rid of Somerset. If Somerset was dead, Henry couldn't release him from the tower. So while York and Henry were there to negotiate, Warwick was there to actually, he was always intending to finish those guys off. Well, I think York was up for it. York was prepared to go to violence if necessary. Warwick, I mean, if you look at Warwick's activities almost throughout his life, there is a darkness there. There is a sort of mm. willingness to, to go for the jugular and settle things straight away. I mean, every, almost everything that Warwick does can be set in that light. Mm. And I, I think these are murders, really. Yeah. They are. It, it is a pure fluke. The Henry VI wasn't killed. Yeah, he got an arrow in the neck, didn't he? So... Yeah, it could well. You think an inch or two either way, yeah. he was dead. And exactly. that, that, as I think, what that what, that's what shows you Warwick's callous disregard for the lives of anybody really who isn't his friend. Yeah, that must have scared Margaret as well because yes, you know how close Henry had come. She'd not just lost her allies; she'd almost lost her husband. And if that had happened, she would have been without any protection. And Edward of Westminster was still a boy who could have so easily been done away with afterwards, put him in the Tower of London and forget about him. The irony of St Albans was that it actually gave Margaret allies that she didn't have before. Yeah. Because the deaths, particularly the deaths of Northumberland, 
Somerset and Clifford, three noblemen of note, that that caused shockwaves in various parts of England. And it also caused a lot of consternation amongst the nobility generally. Mm -hmm. If you bear in mind that the, the, the vast majority of the nobility were loyal to Henry VI. Yeah. Not just in 1455, but from then on, right the way up to 1461 at Towton, the vast majority of the nobility were on Henry's side. But what St. Albans did was it, it told not just Margaret, but it told many of the noble families of England that York and Warwick were a dangerous combination mm. and they couldn't trust them. Yeah. This is a cataclysmic event. Uh, it's easily glossed over because of the battles that occur afterwards. But at the time, this was an amazing event, that a, a dread event that people couldn't imagine how on earth it could happen. And how many times did both Richard, Duke of York and the Earl of Warwick swear an oath to keep the peace, to keep their allegiance to Henry VI? Countless times they swore oaths. And yet they broke those oaths frequently. Mm. So if you're Margaret, you're thinking, hang on a minute, they keep saying, that they're going to yeah. be loyal to this king, my husband, but they manifestly are not. They follow their own agendas. Loyal to their own interests. Yeah, it's easy to see why she would be suspicious, to say the least. And you've got the, the heirs of Northumberland, Somerset and Clifford. They are coming for Warwick and York. Mm. They are young at that point, but they're not forgetting, essentially, the, no. the, the murder of their, their fathers. So I think there's a lot stored up there. How frustrating it must have been for Margaret to be married to Henry VI, because Henry VI was endlessly forgiving people. Endless. It was impossible mm. to imagine anybody who could forgive as easily as he could. And I think it's manifested in the in the famous or infamous Love Day celebrations, 1458 in London. Yeah, I was just thinking of that. I mean, Henry thought he'd cracked it. Henry thought he'd solved the country's divisions. He had told his his barons, his queen, everybody else to get on with it and be kind to each other. Mm. And they processed through London with, with Margaret of Anjou, arm in arm with, uh, or being led by the Richard Duke of York and Warwick with the, with, uh, the heir of the Duke of Somerset, would you believe, who he'd just killed. And as if anybody there whether they be taking part or watching, believed any of it. It, it was just a nonsense. Mm, except for Henry. <laughs> except Henry. Henry thought it was great. Yeah. He thought he'd, you know, he thought he'd done a great service for the nation. Thing is, if everybody had been like Henry, it would have worked. But the problem for Henry was <laughs> he was unique. He was the only person who didn't want war, who didn't want to fight. He just wanted everybody to get along. There's a great scene at the end of, um, is it the Waterloo, where there's a boy shouting, why can't we all just get along? Yeah, and I know. You can imagine Henry VI shouting that into the void because he just wanted everybody to get on. There were so many divisions. I think the problem is with the murder of Somerset and things like that, blood feuds like that were going to carry on forever, weren't they? They were things that you couldn't get past. I think this is fundamental. I think uh, Margaret, her response to St Albans was to to try and create some way in which she could take the lead in royal policy. When, of course, the whole world and his dog didn't believe that a queen could play that role. Mm. So she, I'm not sure whether she devised it or whether it just came about, but by 1456, she's controlling world policy as part of what's described as a trinity of king, queen and prince. So she's acting for the king and for the prince, her son. Yeah. And that, that trinity is what's presented to the nation. It's presented as mm. 
how things are. And she moves the centre of that of the court to Coventry, where she's got Kenilworth nearby. She's got key allies, Buckingham, Wiltshire, Shrewsbury are all nearby. And sh- she makes that her centre of operations. And she knows London has been favourable to the Duke of York for so long. Well, and Warwick, yes, and Warwick. Yeah, so she doesn't want to be there because she's not among friends, as far as she's concerned. So moving to the Midlands takes her out of what, to her, is a dangerous city. Definitely. It is a precedent of sorts because no previous queen had ruled in this way. Mm. Nobody's in any doubt that she is controlling royal policy. But York, Warwick, Salisbury and and co are aware that as the 1450s go on, their position is slipping. Yeah. If there was a war, she'd be winning it. Politically, she's winning. She's winning the peace. Exactly that. She's winning the peace. And gradually she ratchets it up. It's quite clever, actually. And certainly, again, not the actions of a she-wolf. This is the actions of a a, a politically astute woman. Mm who sees a way forward for her, her husband and her son, and she sees that way forward as, as having to destroy York and Warwick. The problem is York and Warwick are the two most powerful nobles in the country by a long way. Yeah. And it's a tough, a tough ask. But if you if you consider what she does, she basically backs them into a corner. She excludes them in the end from great councils and so on, and, and basically says, OK, if you want to make an argument about this, you're going to have to do it by means of war because we're politically excluding you. Mm. And she drives them, therefore, into a corner. Now, you could argue, well, that's not a very good idea because it forces them to take up arms. But they'd already taken up arms. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it wasn't forcing them to do anything they hadn't already done before. No, exactly. And when they do take up arms and they end up facing the king at uh, Ludford Bridge at Ludlow in October 1459, finally they've, they've shown their colours, they've raised an army and the king's army faces them. Mm. And in the king's army is virtually every man of the nobility. And in their army is just them, basically, in terms of nobles. And there are desertions because their army, they're facing the king, the king himself, Mm -hmm. in person. Are they going to take up arms against their lawful anointed king? That's what York and Warwick are asking them to do. And some of them desert overnight and York and Warwick realise that that, that they can't do it. Mm. They They can't win, so they flee. So at that point, it's a huge win for Margaret because she's backed them into a corner. She said, OK, put up or shut up. And in the end, they have to shut up and go away. Yeah. So I think well played Margaret, really. <laughs> Nowhere in all of that do I see a she-wolf. But I think that that, that comes later, really. I think it's um, it's Wakefield and the build up to Wakefield, isn't it? And um, the devastation that her army caused in the north of England. Well, yeah, I think uh, the Battle of Wakefield is obviously very, very significant because York was killed. Uh, so the, the figurehead of the whole Yorkist mm. faction is killed. And his mate is is Salisbury, the Earl of Salisbury, is also executed. Well, not executed so much as hanged by a mob mm. or beheaded by a mob. But uh, because he was actually imprisoned and was going to be ransomed, I think, probably. But uh, some weren't happy with that idea. So 
December 1460, after Wakefield, is, is, a, is a win. It's a clear high. Margaret's not responsible for anything that happens at Wakefield. No, she wasn't there, was she? It's probably, no, she wasn't there. It's probably Clifford that kills uh, York's son, Edmund, mm. Earl of Rutland. York is probably, almost certainly killed in the, ba- in the fighting itself. Yeah. Because he would have been fighting alongside his men. That's the way he was. And and if he's dead, it's because he, he was killed then, I'd imagine. Very, very likely. So how does that, how is that Margaret's fault? You know, I don't see mm. it. She has basically throughout been consistently trying to protect her husband and son's interest. There's there's not a great deal of ambition there for herself. But, you know, if there is, it's entirely through them. Wasn't there a scene, was it Shakespeare or was it somebody who wrote it about um, her telling her son to decide the fates? This is um, this is after the Battle of St Albans in February 1461, but but in December 1460 there is no Yorkist cause. Duke of York's dead. Yes, he's got sons, but the eldest is mm. barely eighteen. Warwick still has London, but but he has no is no potential king in York because York's dead. So what you get happening in 1461 mm. is something that Margaret couldn't have planned for, and that's the emergence of Edward Earl of March. York's son, who now has nothing to lose. And he he proves himself to be a very able general and, and warrior. So he begins to gain momentum. Ironically, mm. Warwick, the great general, in very much in inverted commas there, Warwick manages to lose possession of Henry VI at the same time as losing the Second Battle of St. Albans. Mm. And he doesn't so much lose possession of Henry VI, he just sort of abandons him, really. It's ludicrously bad in terms of uh, any sort of political thinking. You've got possession of the king, therefore you are acting within the law. Lose possession of the king, you're a traitor. So it's it's a very important moment. But yes, this, this accusation, I think it is Shakespeare. Yeah where after the Battle of St Albans, King Henry is basically found. He's just found sitting under a tree. But he's still guarded by two men who had once been loyal, very loyal Mm. men of Henry VI and who had switched sides to York. And and those two men are the ones that, it is said, Prince Edward decided to condemn. Load of nonsense, really, because, I mean, I think it was Margaret would want them dead because they were turncoats. Mm. And what's significant is that the biggest fish that was captured, Warwick's brother, John Neville, Earl of Montague, he was captured. If she wanted to make a really big statement, she could have executed him, but she didn't. So the fact that people pick on Mm. this whole issue of, oh, it was a terrible young prince condemning these two these two men is is really quite ludicrous. That they were turncoats, they had reneged on their oaths to Henry VI. Mm. They were quite reasonably, therefore, regarded as traitors and execution was it may not have been a particularly merciful punishment, but it was a it was an yep. expected punishment. Yeah. And they would have known that. They would have known as soon as Warwick fled that their lives were forfeit if they stayed. Yeah. And you could say, well, they they did well to stay with Henry VI to protect him in what was clearly a chaotic situation and their reward was to be executed. You could make that case. 
But I don't think it's particularly unreasonable that they were executed, no. given everything else that was <laughs> kicking off. And there had been executions of Lancastrians by Edward Earl of March before that. So, you know, I think I think this is, again, this is this whole um, Shakespearean image of Margaret is very much the she one. Mm. Certainly the character of Margaret of Anjou in Shakespeare's three plays on Henry VI is that of a ferocious, driven woman mm. um, who is unnatural, if you like. Yes. And that's really what gives rise to this whole legend. But um, I don't see it in fact at all. No. And it's unfortunate that her history has been coloured for 400 years as a result. I don't know exactly what it was like before that, but it probably seen as the Yorkists won for a little while. It probably wasn't favourable even before that. As many Richard III fans will tell you, Shakespeare's influence spreads far and wide. <laughs> yeah, you see, I don't, I've never blamed Shakespeare for any of that because Shakespeare's writing fiction. Yeah. And exactly. he's not trying to present a history. No. It's a history play, it's got characters in it. If they were all bland, nobody would want to go and watch it. So all this rubbish about Tudor propaganda and Shakespeare and all the rest of it. Yeah is by the by. I mean, okay, so he did that. Mm. Get over it and just look at the facts, look at the evidence. People seem to find that remarkably difficult to do. Yeah, and I think they do start, uh, because of the Shakespeare portrayal, they do, do start at Margaret of Anjou was this overbearing she-wolf who killed people at a whim and did everything to fight for her son's inheritance. Who wouldn't anyway do everything to fight for her son's inheritance? Women do that. And they start from that rather than looking at Margaret of Anjou herself. They start at looking at this distorted portrayal of her. Like you say, if you look at her history or actually just think, what would any other woman do in her situation, she has a husband who's mentally unstable, a son she's got to protect, raise and train to be king. Whereas in those days, you know, women were supposed to follow their husband's instructions on everything. She's got to take the lead because Henry isn't strong enough to. So what was she supposed to do? Was she supposed to do that? Or was she just supposed to lie down, enter a convent and go, have at it, boys? <laughs> Well, if you're a supporter of, of York in, in 1460, then she should just be quiet and allow York to take control. Mm. But most of the nobility didn't agree with that. No. There was a deal called the Act of Accord in 1460, whereby Henry VI would remain king, but his son, Prince Edward, was disinherited. Yeah. The throne was to pass to the Duke of York and his heirs. So that act of accord in 1460 was a line in the sand for Margaret because it meant her son was disinherited. She wasn't going to put up with that. And again, is this unreasonable? No, it's totally reasonable. Again, she's put in a situation that virtually nobody else, no other woman had ever been put in in English history. So she's she's working it out as she goes along. And most of the nobility are with her. Mm. And we need to keep saying that because otherwise people assume we've got two equal sides here, two rival groups. We've got York, Warwick, and everybody else on the other side, mm. basically. And the Queen, therefore, has every right to assume that those loyal uh, supporters of Henry VI are, are going to remain loyal. And to be fair, they do. Mm. 
until Towton, where a lot of them die as a result of that loyalty. Yes. So, you know, I, I, I struggle to think what Margaret could have done differently or should have done even mm. differently to to offset the, the disadvantage she had of the way her husband was. It must have been endlessly frustrating. And like you said, she had the most of the nobility on her side. So she she would have believed known she was in the right and she was she was protecting her son's inheritance and trying to protect henry from himself from the fact that he wasn't capable of dealing with it she you know she had to take the pressure off henry by handling things as much as she could herself yeah all the propaganda put out by warwick and york and so on in in the late 50s is designed to undermine her as much as possible but when you consider all of that even then the rest of the nobility do seem to accept her as the figurehead of government. Mm. You know, there, there's not lots of Lancastrian, loyal Lancastrians saying, oh, well, we can't get on with this this she-wolf. We can't get on with this ferocious woman. There's nobody saying mm. that because they accept that she's doing the best she can to keep the king on the throne. And what is remarkable, yeah. and I've said this in a number of places, what's remarkable is how many people remain loyal to Henry VI, even when they've seen how terrible a king he is. Yet they're still loyal. Mm. And uh, she feeds off that. She uses that, which you would expect. But she doesn't win, as somebody somebody may have noticed. That must have been a hard time from 1461 to 1470. Henry eventually gets captured and put in the Tower of London. Edward IV is on the throne with Warwick as his right-hand man, yeah. At the beginning. And she ends up in Scotland for a time, doesn't she, before going to France? Between something like, I suppose, 1461 to 64, she's organising resistance. She's she's trying to do a deal with Scotland for Scottish help. She's trying to do deals with France for their help to restore Henry VI. Mm. Obviously, once he's captured, that rather makes that difficult because Edward IV then has the ex-king in his possession. As long as Henry VI is free, it's a bit easier for Margaret to, to drum up support. Again, she shows qualities that surely we would regard as positive ones. She's tenacious. Mm. She's loyal. She keeps going. Yep. She keeps fighting, even when everything goes wrong and, and all her support disappears. She she has not given up. Mm. She must have become very bitter, of course, but I guess you could say she still has her son. Mm. When she goes back, I think she she goes to back to France in the mid sixties, I think, and um, and she she goes with Prince Edward. So personally, she has salvaged her son, but th there's just a big hole there, mm. isn't there? There's just a big sort of loss, which must have been very difficult to to cope with. But I don't think she actually at any point gave up, and I imagine that she observed the growing differences and friction between Edward the mm. Fourth and the Earl of Warwick. Yeah as a means of, of capitalising on Yorkist division. I don't think necessarily she thought she would be making an alliance with the Earl of Warwick, because that must have very much seemed uh, like doing a deal with the devil. But uh, I think she thought that the divisions between them might offer her a way back. Mm. I wonder if she also thought that while Henry was still alive, although incarcerated in the Tower, there was still hope of putting him back on the throne. I still find it remarkable that Henry was still alive. Yeah, I mean, there's there's various ways of looking at that. You, you could say that Edward IV was, was too merciful. He should have killed him. Another man might have done, mm. but, but he didn't. And what has always amazed me is 
This is 1471 when Margaret eventually lands in England. What amazes me is she lands in the southwest and immediately there is a lot of support for Henry VII. Mm. What is that all about? I mean, it's 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 over a decade since Edward became king. Yet there is still a groundswell of popular support for a king who is arguably the most useless king England's ever had. And yet people are still willing to take up arms. Yeah. It makes very little sense to me, but I guess at the time, in an age of oaths that meant something to many people, in an age where the king was anointed by God, many would have believed that Edward the Fourth wasn't king, mm-hmm. wasn't the rightful king, because the the existing king, God's choice as king, Henry the Sixth, was still alive. Mm. And it also might be a case of rose-coloured glasses, because you know how. In the 80s, it was the 70s were so much better and where's, you know, crimes up, education's worse and all that kind of thing. And then the same thing in the 90s, it was the 80s were so much better. Yeah. And I do wonder if a bit of it was, well, it wasn't like this under the old. I think you're absolutely right, because Edward IV, well, Richard Duke of York first and then Edward IV and Warwick had promised what rebels always promise, which is to settle the grievances of people. Mm. And of course, like everybody else before them and afterwards, they didn't settle mm. the grievances because you never can. No. There's too many There's too many issues. So where Edward was supposed to bring law and order, he didn't really. Mm. So people didn't notice much difference. They didn't notice much improvement no. under Edward, certainly in the first reign. And he upset his friends to try and appease his enemies as well, which didn't help. But Edward is a person that people who knew him, who worked with him, who fought with him, would always support because... He had charisma. He had mm. something that Henry lacked. But Henry had had this ideal that he was the anointed. Mm. But I mean, we we perhaps ought to talk about the elephant in the room, which is the the rather bizarre and unexpected alliance between two mortal enemies, Richard Earl of Warwick, who had done almost everything he could to undermine and yeah. destroy the Queen, and, and Margaret of Anjou, who who regarded him as something she'd trodden on. So, I mean, how this came about, it didn't happen in five minutes. It was a shock, but it was a shock that a few people, I think, were aware was coming. The, the, the ground was prepared by mm. uh, Louis XI, the, the universal spider, the scheming French king. He saw the opportunity to, to gain advantage from the divisions in England. And mm. by 1470, Warwick had really burnt his bridges he he had lo- totally lost the support of edward the fourth he'd even rebelled against him it was it was chaos so mm. warwick had nowhere else to go warwick had no possibility of regaining his power in 1470 he'd fled the country and that was it but there mm. were negotiations going on between intermediaries offering him a lifeline and the lifeline was margaret of anjou i mean that if I had tried to write this as fiction, people would say it's completely ridiculous. And she didn't want it either, obviously. I mean, neither of them trusted each other. They were the last person on earth who no. would, they would have trusted. You can imagine how icy it was in that meeting between them where, well, was it Warwick was on his knees? Olger Cathedral, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think it had to be a, a church, didn't it? <laughs> Just to make sure they didn't kill each other. He had to swear an oath to her. Yeah. And he was, yeah, I was on his knees for about 15 minutes. And mm, on the cold stone. <laughs> he was lucky to get up after 15 minutes, I think. But yeah, it was very, very, very difficult <laughs> occasion. 
And of course, neither really, they made this alliance and it was a last hope for both of them. There's no doubt about that. But, and they knew, and they both knew that. And it shows also how astute Margaret was because, yes, she agreed to this alliance, sealed by a marriage between her son Edward and Warwick's daughter Anne. But the marriage was not going to be consummated until Warwick won the crown back. Yeah, yeah, because she didn't trust she didn't trust him. And also, to be fair, Anne Neville was not the bride for a king, despite the fact no. she becomes a bride of a king later. But Margaret assumed that her son, Prince Edward, when he became king, he would marry a foreign princess of some very high-ranking yep. family. Warwick's daughter didn't count as that. So this was a marriage foisted upon her. She didn't want it, but it was the price or one of the prices of doing a deal with Warwick. And I think uh, the funny thing is, had there been the slightest trust between them, I think Margaret would have got Henry VI back on the throne. Because yeah. for me, the only reason why the whole scheme fails is that Margaret doesn't go to England soon enough. Mm. By the time she gets to England at the beginning of May, Warwick is dead and Warwick has been yeah. heavily defeated. And so she arrives in a crisis rather than arriving mm. when everything's been sort of settled had she arrived sooner given the amount of as i said earlier the amount of support she gets in in the southwest and she's got the duke of somerset with her and so on given all of that given what warwick's achieved and all of his power combined i find it in, despite my high regard for edward the fourth i find it impossible to believe that the york brothers could possibly have survived 1471, if she had arrived much earlier. Yeah. And it's that mistrust that is, if you like, the fatal flaw in that arrangement. She didn't give herself a good enough chance. But you can understand it. I mean, crikey, certainly understand why she didn't trust Warwick. Yeah, you can understand why. It's just um, the fact that it did constitute her, her final downfall and the deaths of all her hopes in Edward and yeah. Henry VI. But Warwick was her mortal enemy. <laughs> and to actually make a deal with him in the first place was hard enough Yeah, to trust him. Yeah. And as I said earlier, you know, here was a man who had broken his oath numerous times. Mm. So the fact that he was swearing an oath now no. didn't mean anything at all to her because it's just as likely he wouldn't keep it. Would Warwick have kept it? What would he have done if, if they had succeeded? Who knows? But for certain, the, the death of Prince Edward at Tewkesbury put the, put the, the final nail in the coffin there. Mm. But I think um, that apart, and, and again, we can forgive her, I think, for that reluctance to trust Warwick. But I think uh, this is a woman who should be celebrated as courageous, astute, yes. and and pretty sensible actually mm. uh, certainly not the extreme myth that's no. grown up around him and i think it's a great shame and it happens all over the place i mean the wars of the roses is a kind of red rag that you start talking about anybody in the wars of the roses and suddenly it, it's all black and white they're either a hero mm. or a villain they're a monster yeah, um... or they're you know a saint and really mm. i think everyone should just grow up remember that it was 600 years ago they're all dead they were just people there's nothing monstrous about them 
they were acting in their own interest most of the time, just like every single one of us yeah. does. They were doing what they thought was right for them and their families. And whatever side they were on, they were fighting for their families. And Margaret was, she was a strong woman. She was faced with a challenging situation. You know, <laughs> yeah. a young woman to be married to a man who is whose mental faculties just disappear for a year. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're just there in a catatonic state and suddenly you're in your early 20s and you've got this child to look after, country to look after. And it must have been a daunting challenge for her, but she rose to it. And even after that, when Henry came back to himself, he'd lost some of his strength. Before his mental breakdown, he wasn't a strong king. After his mental breakdown, people would be wondering how strong was he mentally? Would it happen again? He was diminished and Margaret had to fill that void. He clearly was was not uh, a man with any steel in him at all. He was clearly no. a man who, who wanted to please people, a man who was kind and generous and educated. Somebody, I think it was probably, uh, probably Lauren Johnson, I ought to mention Lauren Johnson's book, Shadow King, which is a fantastic biography. It, it's kind of the Wars of the Roses as well as the life and death of Henry VI. But if, if anybody's interested in finding out a lot more about Henry VI and the whole period, they, they should uh, they should read it. Because although it's, it's a large tome, it is actually very readable. And I, I think it's the most authoritative book on Henry VI for many years. So I think what she says is that Henry had read and had been educated in all the attributes required of a king. He knew he knew them backwards. He could have recited them to you if it asked him, but he had no idea how to actually put them into practice. Mm. And, and Margaret had to deal with that, and she had to deal with a man. It's not dementia; it's an illness of some sort. I mean, there have been there have been suggestions as to what it was, but but the point is, she was dealing with a man who was crumbling, a man who mm. was stressed out by what was happening to him, to the kingdom. And so on. He was not a fool. He was not a man who was unaware of what was happening. No, he no. knew that things were going wrong, and he tried his hardest to do something about it. And she was supporting this man who was basically failing. Mm. He was crumbling. He was falling to pieces mentally. He was just overwhelmed. Yeah, I think overwhelmed is a good word to describe him. And it's it's a sad story. And for me, it's one in which. Margaret of Anjou is the heroine mm. and should be regarded as such, really. Anything else is, is, to, is to believe the propaganda of Warwick. I think, like you say as well, it shouldn't be about taking sides as to whether you're a Lancastrian or a Yorkist. It should be you have to look at it objectively at each individual. And what she managed to achieve herself in a world where women weren't supposed to do anything but raise children, do the sewing, handle the household accounts, that she managed to keep her husband on the throne until 1461 mm. and to keep her son alive and his hopes of attaining the throne alive even when somebody else has sat on the throne, that she ultimately failed is mm. sad. But the strength and the abilities she must have had in order to keep those hopes alive. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it before on, on Threads and the Wars of the Roses. Somebody would say, I hate Margaret of Anjou. And I'm thinking, what? 
she's dead. How on earth can you hate her or anybody else in that period? It's just ludicrous. I admire her. She's, uh, she did yes. a lot of admirable things. She kept going in the face of such adversity. She carried on fighting until her son died. And it was like, well, there's nothing left to fight for. I, I would say that in the years I've studied the Wars of the Roses, mm. there are only two people who I actually admire. One of them is Edward IV, and the other one is Margaret of Anjou. I've not much time for Warwick, but certainly not for Richard, Duke of York, certainly not for Gloucester or Clarence. But but Margaret of Anjou should be seen as a genuine heroine, not a she-wolf. So Margaret of Anjou was a heroine. I think that's a great place to finish today. Thanks very much, Derek. Fabulous conversation. Join us next time. Uh, when we're going to be doing something a little different. And this is the first of our A Slice of Medieval Goes Rogue, because we have Ben Kane back with us talking about his latest book, Napoleon's Spy. So we're going out of the medieval era just to see how it feels. We might jump back in again, but we'll see. So thanks for joining us. Do join us next time. I've been Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. And we look forward to having you with us again next time. Mm-hmm.